This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to episode 62 of the podcast where we give you an inside look into aviation careers. Today I'm here with a, uh, a special guest who's going to help us answer some questions and we're going to also have some further discussion. It's uh, Jamie Beckett. Jamie Beckett, you've been on before. Uh, welcome back to Aviation Careers Podcast. Thank you so much, Carl. I really appreciate it. Jamie actually is a, an independent author. Uh, he has books, uh, mainly, uh, I think it's nonfiction or fictional Fiction. books, fictional books, and also does some writing in the aviation career. We're going to start this uh, question and answer session off with, with an article that you wrote ab- about general aviation and general aviation airports and the minority, and the minority being pilots. Wow. Wait a minute. The minority is pilots? I, I, I can't, cannot believe that. You know, normally when you go to an airport, People think about it. pilots. You know, we we're the ones that have the glory. You know, it's it's like the quarterback, et cetera. But there's so many other people within the aviation careers and aviation jobs that that make an airline and an airport run. And you know, I've said this before. You know, one out of every six positions in an airline is a pilot. So what are those other folks doing? And that's where we discuss a little bit here about that article. But first, before we do that, a quick uh, mention of our sponsors. Uh, you know, of course, if you go to aviationcareerspodcast.com and just click on some of our sponsors on the right side of the, the uh, screen there, it would be great. helps us and uh, helps bring this content to you. Also consider annual membership. We've gone beyond the 60 free scholarships uh, that are published on the webpage. And if you do become an annual member, we also are including a lot more. We have the pilot jobs book practical guide to winter flying and a lot of the other videos that we're putting up there you know as far as the safety meetings that i do and all the other types of training videos more uh, uh technical interviews but still interviews the same so take a look at that aviationcareerspodcast.com slash membership well jamie you wrote an article recently in general aviation news and you know what we'll, we'll get a link at uh, aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 62 there'll be a link to that article at ga news uh, it's really interesting and you call it the minority the minority being the pilots. Why did you name it that? Well, it struck me that, you know, I'm an oddity myself that I'm a pilot and a mechanic, and I actually earned my living writing about aviation and writing novels. But whenever you get into a discussion about about aviation with anybody, whether they're aviation people or non-aviation people, the, the conversation seems to focus on pilots. And whenever we get into discussions about airport use or whether we should invest in an airport or maintain it or or whatever we always come back to a discussion about pilots and it struck me as i was noodling about on this pilots are the minority population not just in the general population but even within aviation pilots are a minority now that's not to say it's not an incredibly important job it is but you know when you go to the airport the international airport and you're going on vacation and you've got your carry-on bag and everything, you'll see a handful of pilots walking through the terminal. But you'll see literally dozens of flight attendants and ticket agents and baggage handlers and security people. I mean, it's an enormous industry, and it doesn't take that huge leap to become a pilot to be involved. Even at your local general aviation airport, the line service workers are incredibly important. And one of the things I mentioned in the, in the article that I think is worthwhile for anybody anywhere, the airport may be the only place in your town where a millionaire and a kid who just graduated high school 
operate as peers because they need each other to function properly. That's an awesome opportunity for that high school graduate <laughs> because the connections you can make with those people, business, whatever you want to do, you're not going to meet that person down at the bank. You're going to meet them at the airport. And we talk a lot about networking. That's a perfect networking opportunity. Now, by saying that, and of course, as a careers podcast, what ha there's jobs. All those are jobs. Those are things that people do. You know, let's. I know we said this before, but let's let's remind ourselves what type of jobs are available. You, you've mentioned a few. The line person, uh, that's the person that you know helps direct the airplane and also sells the gas directly to the person buying the gas. But there's quite a few more folks here, and there's people that use the airport that have really nothing to do with aviation other than the fact that they're sitting in the back. Yeah, there's there's office worker jobs. I mean, there's right now we're at Gilbert Field in Winter Haven, Florida, right in the center of the state. It's a great general aviation airport, but it's absolutely general aviation. There's no ticket counter here. There's no airline service. But there's two people right now sitting at the FBO desk, and they're handling things like hangar issues and you know, ordering fuel and who's next on the lineup to go out on a, an instructional flight and all that kind of things. So most jobs in aviation don't actually require you to get in an airplane and fly. And I don't think most people are aware of that. It's a tiny group of us that actually get in the airplane and fly. For most of us, it's support staff. It's actually, in that sense, it's not much different than show business. You can go see the Rolling Stones. That's five guys. But there's 200 people involved in putting that show together. <laughs> so that's kind of how it works. I had to count that five. Yeah, he's right. There's, there's, there's five there. <laughs> That's what age does to you. Gosh, <laughs> I was like, wait, there's four. Oh, no, there's five. Okay. <laughs> you know, you, you mentioned a lot of terms there. And for people that are being introduced to general aviation, general aviation is everything but the airlines. Mm -hmm. And uh, you also talked about the FBO. That's the fixed base operator. It's an old term. But those are the folks that are here at the airport that sell the gas and provide all the services, basically manage the airport for somebody who owns that or they're the owner of the airport. Uh, throughout the that FBO, you talked about office staff. You also have mechanics. We talked about that. We, we also have some ancillary uh, type of, of businesses here. We have the folks at the rental car companies here. Uh, we also, every so often, we'll see some folks that are on the airport have nothing to do with aviation. Those are people just promoting travel uh, within the area. I think Lakeland has that there and, and some other airports. So there are a lot of other jobs. And, and in general, we're moving people into things. Uh, one of the things that I think is really important, and you mentioned this in your article, I want you to talk towards this, is how a lot of folks are under the impression that this is just for those people that are bringing their corporate jets in and those people to have their little playgrounds and and that's so far from the truth also i don't like to demonize anybody because those people that are bringing those corporate jets in here are bringing jobs mm -hmm. and they're bringing industries in here so it's good that they have an airport for that so just uh, speak towards those two points well maybe i can put it best this way i recently did a presentation to a city commission about the value of aviation and i do speak in public settings about the value of aviation fairly regularly. I encourage people who don't have an aviation background to stop thinking of the airport as an airport because they don't have a frame of reference. And that's not to be disrespectful, but they're thinking the international airport, which is a whole different thing. I ask them to think of the airport as a mall. It's a large commercial piece of real estate. Now, if you own a mall and it's fully populated and it's got people flowing through it all the time, that's a real asset to your community, regardless of what they're selling in those stores. But if you've got a mall that has no anchor stores, one outlet in the food court, a couple kiosks, you have a management issue. And you could see that because it's a non-aviation business. You get it. 
we delude ourselves as a society because of the aviation component into thinking this is something different, and it's not. You're exactly right. When that businessman comes in, whether he's flying a King Air or a Bonanza or a 60-year-old Cessna 152 because he's working on his own private license, it doesn't matter. Somebody was just introduced to your town, and this is an ability to, to come in and see what's the value of your town, what's here, why do I want to be here? And you and I have both had the experience, I'm sure, of flying into someplace we've never been before, and we leave saying, I have to come back here. This is just the coolest thing in the world. Well, that's the first step to getting investment in your town. So you really have to look at the airport as a business opportunity. And, and that wide spectrum of jobs, as you say, it's not just pilots and mechanics and baggage handlers and line boys. It's the rental car people. It's the restaurant down the hall. That waitress is employed because there's a place at the airport. That's important to a community because it expands your economic potential. And that matters. And it matters to you that's listening right now because there's jobs that are associated with that. So if you're thinking about getting into aviation but you don't want to fly, you don't want to be a mechanic, there's many other opportunities. You want to work around airports, you can. You know, it's interesting. I, I talked to somebody, and I'd seen her working at the airport as a waitress for many, many years. And, and I'd asked her about this. I said, hey, listen, you know, you've been here for so long. You probably know more about airplanes than most people walking in around here. She said, yeah, I sure do. I said, did you ever think of flying or, or anything? She says, no, no, I just, I love being around aviation and airplanes, but I like it from my perspective. I love watching people going from point A to point B. And she said she, she'd pretend that she was that person and that they, she was traveling herself, or she would try to pretend like she knows what they're doing. You know, like I know that person's going to Europe and, and she'd have this whole fantasy in her mind of her traveling to Europe. So I said, that's, that's pretty cool. So she really, it, she enjoys hearing the stories from, from the patrons at the restaurant. Well, and as you talk about just the work environment, people at the airport, pilots and aviation oriented people tend to be very optimistic and sociable and outgoing. It's actually a pretty enjoyable work environment that has odd activity going on out the window. It, it's really not like your average place because there's a flight going out periodically, and that in itself is exciting. There are people who will go on lunch. People who work at the airport will go on break or lunch, and they'll just sit and watch airplanes take off and land. This is a great place to spend your life. It doesn't matter if you're the bookkeeper or the pilot. It's an interesting place to be. And I think most people would agree with that. And, and you have to come by the airport. If you haven't been in an airport yet and you're listening and you're thinking about a career in aviation, the place you need to start is, is here, right here at the airport where we're sitting, any airport. Just go in, take a look around, and, and say hi. And say, oh, are you a pilot? You know, are you a flight instructor? Are you, you know, what do you do here at the airport? Are, are you the mechanic? You know, why do you like working here? That type of thing. Don't be bashful. Try it out. Well, and even in the mechanic world, and th this is kind of an important fact to me because I'm an AMP, I'm an airframe and power plant mechanic. I enjoy it. I used my license to work on World War II bombers and fighters and go, I used to stitch fabric over at Fantasy Flight on planes built in the 20s. But, you know, I grew up in East Hartford, Connecticut, right across the, the river from Pratt and Whitney. And there were people with AMPs that were building turbine engines that went on fighters and airliners. Being a mechanic is a really bizarre job because it's almost like medicine that you can specialize. There are people who just do turbine engines. People just do radial engines. There are people who do metal repair. There are people who do fabric. There are people who do composite. You get to specialize and do what you want to do. And, and aviation has that unique 
career path built in, I guess, where you start because you're fascinated, but you tend to gravitate towards the thing that you specifically enjoy and excel at. And because of that, you and I both fly, but we fly very different aircraft. And we both enjoy it, and we're proud of what we do. You're exactly right. You can go up to virtually anybody at the airport and start chatting with them. They're proud of what they do, and they're happy to tell you about it because it thrills them. They, they do it because they have a passion. And, you know, it's interesting. You can you can bring a certain other passion into aviation. For instance, you know, every, a lot of people know now I'm, my background's in computers, and uh, that's how I started my career. But one of the things I love to do is I used to teach classes in people's homes and, and in office buildings about computers. And I love teaching, and I love flying. Well, there's this thing called a flight instructor. I was like, wow, this is cool. I can teach and I can fly at the same time. So here I am able to take two passions that I have for teaching and for flying and combine them into one. And now, you know, the thing I was most proud of in my career is not flying, you know, internationally. It's, it's more so being able to be a flight instructor. It was my most proud moment and still is, is to be an actual flight instructor. Imagine that. You know, it, it's odd. But I, I'm a flight instructor, and I thought I was going to be an airline pilot. But I ended up finding a completely different career through being a flight instructor. I, like you, I like to teach. I started writing. There was a magazine on the field where I was an instructor, and I was hanging out with the editor. We flew together a few times. He owned a 172. And I was teasing him one day about writing about aviation instead of flying more, and he challenged me to write an article. And I did, and he paid me. This was a big eye-opening experience for a flight instructor. So I started doing it more and more, and I got a regular column. The the piece you mentioned earlier about the minority – that's a regular piece I have for general aviation news called Politics for Pilots, and it comes out in the print publication as well. And it was something that never even occurred to me. But you know, now I write for a fairly diverse group. I write for Glime Publications, uh, both their flight instructor, pilot, and maintenance materials. Um, I write for a number of AOPA publications, including Flight Training and Flight School Business. I do my own novels and things like that. They're fictional, but I've been incredibly fortunate that aviation introduced me to a a career that I never would have even considered. And for me, it's tremendous. It's very satisfying. You know, before we start answering some questions, you you bring up a a great point, the writing. You know, you you fell into that career. It wasn't something you were really looking towards doing. It was an accident. And and that was a big accident. (laughs) And and that's the way a lot of things happen in life. It really is a serendipitous journey, this this life we have here. And and I want to talk a little bit about that because Ian Twombly was on one of our previous episodes. And if you get a chance, take a look at that episode. It's about, you know, writing, you know, getting into publishing and, and writing in an aviation career. Now, you do it a little bit differently. You don't actually work for General Aviation News. You work for yourself. Right. And and we really haven't talked about that yet. So we're, let's take a few minutes and discuss uh, what it's like to be an independent author and writer. How do, you, how do you make money doing that in the aviation world? And that's true in, a, in, in any of the publishing world, but but more so in aviation. Do you need some type of expertise? I'm assuming you're going to say yes. And, and also... You know, how do you how do you make some money? How do you make a living doing that? You know, it's a great question because the requirements for each facet of what I do are different. Obviously, when I write fiction, it's a completely different thing. And I don't write about aviation and fiction, although I do have a sci-fi series that takes place in orbit. And it's mostly factual stuff. But if I'm writing for Glime Publications, for instance, which I like very much, I used it as a student. I absolutely believe in it. I think it's a tremendous product. There's none of Jamie's opinion in there. 
It's all fact. Everything I do, whether I'm answering emails from customers who are a little confused on a point or whether I'm writing the synopsis for how navigational gear works or, or right now I'm working on a series for inspection authorization, the highest level of mechanic, I have to actually go find an FAA reference to every single question, to anything that happens. There's no opinion in it. Now, if I'm writing for Ian Twombly for flight school business or for flight training, and Ian is a great editor. I love working with him. He's fantastic. That's a whole different thing because my personality and my writing style is important because I'm not an in-house writer. I bring something different to the table. Now, what, what makes it possible for me to do that is the fact that I am a flight instructor and I am a mechanic. I'm just a, a rabid researcher. I really enjoy that part. I mean... I would have no interest in getting into a debate with you about angle of attack, critical angle of attack, but I have great joy in going looking up what's correct because I don't have an ego for being the rightest guy in the world. I just know where the information is. But because of that, I can I can go to an editor like Ian, and well, I'll, I'll share a story with you. I had a story that I came across a plane crash when I was seven years old. It was a fatal plane crash, and, and it was kind of gory and... It was unpleasant. Years later, I became a flight instructor, and I used to fly across the mountain that that crash happened on daily. And I started looking into the details of what happened with a totally different perspective now. Now I'm a flight instructor. I want to know what happened and why. And it turned out to be a really horrific chain of bad decision after bad decision that just ended worse than you can imagine. Well, I wrote this story, and it's a really difficult story to place because it's not an upbeat, happy story, but it's an important one. And I sent it to Ian, and and he wrote back. We had never met before, and he wrote back and said, this is an odd story, but it's a great message. We'll use it. And that opened the door to me. And because I was a flight instructor, and I wasn't writing about the crash from the gory perspective, I was writing... How could you recognize this same chain of events happening to you, and how could you circumvent it? How could you stop that? And knowing that this happened would be a part of it. That's a great example of there. Now, I've run flight schools, and because of that, I can write for something like flight school business where I'm not talking about instruction. I'm talking about the business. How do you maximize the effectiveness of your staff? How, how do you cut costs and maintenance? How do you choose the airplane you're going to put on the line That'll be maybe it's more expensive to buy, but it's cheaper to operate. That's really the key. It's it's not about having a huge ego. It's about having something to say that's factually supportable, or when you get into fiction, that's entertaining. <laughs> but no, it's it's been a great career, and I like it a lot. And that's also led me to really the title of aviation advocate. You know, I've been out to California to speak to the California Pilots Association. Very gracious invitation, and they pay you for that. Um, it, it's been great. I've really enjoyed my career, although it's a very non-traditional one. You know, being an independent writer, though, you, you're <laughs> the money that's coming in or, or your income it varies quite a bit. I'm assuming, right? Dramatically, dramatically, and you have to be a businessman. I mean, writing is a business, just like anything else. I have to keep track of who I wrote what for and what the rate was, and I have to invoice people and all that sort of thing. It's um, I guess it's one of those things that from the outside it almost looks like show business, but the reality is writing is work. You, you have to do research. You have to know what you're doing. You have to know that the first draft isn't what you're going to send in and publish. Um, it's very much like learning to fly in the sense that you don't just learn to land. You spend the rest of your life practicing that and working on your technique and really getting it down and 
changing conditions require you to change how you do it. Same thing with writing. I can't write the same way for Glime that I write for flight training because they're completely different vehicles. Glime is fact-based. Flight training is information-based that has a small entertainment quotient to it. And and frankly, uh, the editor, in, in flight training's case, Ian Twombly, who I just I can't say enough good about, he he gives me feedback that provides a tone, and I know where the boundaries are. I can stretch it out this far, but I have to come back to a real lesson. And and one of the things you have to learn also is length. I mean, for general aviation news, I can usually write about a thousand words. For flight school business, I'm down to 400 words. For flight training, I might have 750 or so. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to say what you need to say in that space without a lot of fluff and without leaving out important facts. So right. it's a challenge. Yes, it is. It sure is a challenge. You, know, you speak of the different types of writing that you you do. That also is, is a great aspect of being an independent writer. Uh, I know the first writing that I was paid to do, actually, most people think of really boring, is I wrote user's manuals in, in, uh, for Bayer Aspirin. And, boy, that's, that was pretty darn dry, <laughs> but really an important job because you have to make sure that everything's correct. Like you said, you have to use a lot of references, uh, but there's no stories involved. So it's not quite the glamorous type of job, but it was actually probably the highest-paying writing job I've ever had. <laughs> you know, it, it's odd because it's not fun, but it's satisfying. And my best example of that is I wrote a course once on how to use a GPS navigational tool. And it's, it, there's there's no adjectives. There's, there's nothing exciting in this. It's just, you push this button, you turn that knob two clicks, you should see this, the cursor goes there. It has to be absolutely accurate because the user is going to access this and you don't want to frustrate them. So I have to write, this is how it works. And then I have to go back and read my text and do it and, and make sure I get the right outcome. It, it's challenging. And you're right. It, it, some people might perceive it as boring. I don't. I, I, it's the thing I like about instruction. I, I like to teach things. And maybe it's just because I got into aviation and because people generally are fairly nervous when they show up for that first lesson. If I can put you in the plane and get you to do the takeoff in 80% of the flying on that first lesson and have you come back with a big old smile on your face and you leave saying, I can't wait to get back here, I flew, I feel good. And and that carries over whether I'm teaching you how to use a GPS or to understand what density altitude really means or whatever. <laughs> Well, that sounds exciting, and, and I would encourage anybody to, to give it a try if that's what they want to do. It's just that uh, you, you kind of have to pick your battles. If, if you want to do some writing, that's great. I do a little bit of writing on the side, but you know, my main job is, is doing this, my podcast and flying airplanes for the airline. I do the airline thing part-time, although it's the summertime right now, and, and we're changing that you know, because summer, June, July, and August is where airlines make all their money. And so you have three months where you make most of your money, so I'm going to be working my butt off here. Well, I'll, I'll tell you in the writing thing, what's really peculiar to me is, and I didn't expect, I enjoyed instructing tremendously, but I instruct one-on-one. There's one person in the plane with me, and I can only have so many flights a day. When I started writing, I realized I can impact tens of thousands of people. And in some of these cases, like with Glime books or things, that material stays out there for as long as it's valid. So I can really have an impact, and, and I get some enjoyment out of that. It's a satisfying thing. Yeah, and that, that's a, a, what's exciting about doing this is that 
you know, instead of just telling one person about a career, we, we get to reach so many voices. And, uh, you know, just thanks for sharing all that. I, I know a lot of people thought we were just going to do a Q&A, but this is, this is awesome, you know, learning a little bit about independent writing. And we could, we could do the whole episode on that. But we do have a few questions we have to get to. So, uh, and if, by the way, if you have any questions for Jamie, just go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash contact, write it to me, and I will send it along. And I'm sure Jamie would be more than willing to come back on and answer that, that question for us. So I really do appreciate that. Uh, anything else before we move on, just a, a quick wrap-up, any advice for people that are thinking about doing that, being an independent type of writer, aviation or otherwise? Um, you know, the best advice I can give you is probably go to your local newspaper. It's not an aviation thing, but go to the local newspaper because they need daily content and offer to write something for them that you don't expect to get paid for. And, and they may accept that, but do it every week. Learn how to keep onto a schedule where your editor can rely on you. Because initially they have a lot of people want to write for them. Very few people will routinely write. If you do that, you'll develop the skill. Then you can go approach an aviation publication with a smaller piece. And that opens the door. Once you get a relationship with an editor, that helps. And eventually you have a reputation and people will hire you just because they say, I've seen their work. I know it's going to be high quality. I won't have to bug them about deadline or length and and I've had that as an editor. I must say, if I tell you I need a 500-word piece and you give me a 5,000-word piece, it's kind of annoying. And when the person who sent it in takes offense that you say, this is 10 times the length it was supposed to be, <laughs> you know, I can't run it. Sorry. So really, learn learn the parameters and just don't expect to make money up front. It's not a high-pay profession ever, but... It starts out at zero, and then you work up to something that you can actually be proud of. And, and that's important there. You're proud of what you do, and, and it's, uh, you take pride in your work, and you get much enjoyment out of your affecting a lot of lives. That's why I would do it, and I think that's why it's so exciting when you do get to write. You know, Some of the articles I've written, the shortest article I wrote was probably my most popular, and it was just talked about volunteerism. Mm-hmm. And, and amazingly enough, it was, it was about uh, 200 words. It's funny how it, you never know what type of impact you'll have. You think a 5,000-word article will have more of an impact, but a lot of times it doesn't. And that was, that was a learning tool for me. I didn't, didn't realize that at the time. You know, I was, I was kind of new to the whole thing. So great advice for me, too. Thanks, thanks JB. <laughs> I appreciate that. But moving on to some of our questions here, we're going to get to a few that uh, people have written in. I have a question that actually came off of expertaviator.com. Of course, that's my blog. And I uh, have all the content from uh, Stuck Mike Avcast to Aviation Careers Podcast on there. Uh, this person writes in about owning an airplane, and I wanted to branch off this this discussion into owning an airplane for training. Uh, this person's looking at an airplane, and they got the bug. They really love flying. Uh, a lot of the airplanes they look at that they like are more in the four hundred to seven hundred thousand range, uh, but they only want to spend a hundred to two hundred thousand. And and he brings up this topic about learning to fly and using it to further his his flying. Well, a lot of folks also look at and buying an airplane to further their career. And I've seen people do it. And we've had both sides of that story. Uh, when you're looking at an airplane that is going to further your career, uh, you have to be really careful because uh, you're not going to be able to afford a jet if that's why, what you want to do. Or maybe you could, I don't know. But you know, you, you're probably not going to be able to afford a jet. Uh, you, you're going to find that you may outgrow that airplane because if you buy a 172, say, a single engine aircraft fixed gear, you're going to need to get some more complex time to move on to the next thing. So now you're not going to be able to use that. But on the other side, I've seen people have said that in owning an airplane and then selling it either at a profit or the same amount of money that they bought it for, 
they've actually been able to reduce the cost of their training. And we're going to have somebody on about that. I personally, and this is my opinion, I'm going to hear Jamie's, is I normally tell people don't buy an airplane if you're, if, if you're thinking of a career in aviation. I'll tell you why. It can be a distraction from you moving forward in your career. Uh, I do believe in enjoying the journey. Don't get me wrong. But if this is something that's going to take away from your learning and you're moving forward in your career, then I'd say, no, don't do it. But if you have the extra cash, then you know you, you have to look at your personal situation at all times. Uh, but there are successes out there, and I do know some people who bought a twin to build multi-time and were able to sell it for a profit. So what do you think, Jamie? I actually agree with you. You have to, when you're looking at an airplane, you have to know why you want that airplane. Learning to fly is one thing. Building the hours and the experience that help your career is a completely different thing. Uh, if you wanted to buy an airplane specifically because you're going to use that to get your private and your instrument and maybe you're going to build time towards your commercial, that's valid. I mean, and I would go towards a lower cost older airplane on that because when you're learning, frankly, you're going to make some mistakes. You may you know, leave a dent now and then. But you make a good point. If you're looking at an airplane to advance your career, you're not looking at an old 152 or a 172. You're looking at twin engine. You're looking at a complex airplane. You need to get nighttime, cross-country time, actual instrument time. These are all things that lead to high dollar, high workload, high cost, frankly. Um, I wouldn't say you shouldn't do it because, as you say, it depends on your personal situation. If you have the money, if it's not gonna, you're not going to lose the house over it, it might be worth looking at. It's not the way I went. It's not the way most people I know went. And and it's there's probably people who have been successful at that. But in all honesty, the people I've known who set a goal as a career for an airline, for instance, because that is the the top the perceived top of the ladder, they generally go to work at a large flight school. You know, a, a flight safety type of thing, something like that, where they can instruct routinely and work their way up through the program there where somebody else is paying for their multi-time and they're getting their cross-country time. Uh, I would never advise somebody not to buy an airplane, but know why you're buying it and what the end game is because there's always an end game. You're not keeping that airplane the rest of your life. Why do you have it? How are you going to use it? And when are you going to cut the cord and get rid of it? You've got to know the answers to those. I tell you though, uh, having gotten rid of an airplane or a partnership in an airplane, it, it's uh, I miss it. I really, really miss it. Uh, and and the reason again, I go back to my mission. Why did I want the airplane? It was for fun. I wanted to fly low and slow. Well, I got into a 182, which is a terrific airplane for traveling. Uh, but I don't need an airplane for traveling. Uh, you know, my situation, I fly for free. So now I want an airplane that goes really, really slow, and I can take pictures with it mm -hmm. and do some aviation photography. So again, you have to look at your, your specific circumstance, and then, hey, maybe I can teach tailwheel, that type of thing. So you really, in buying an airplane to, to, to further your career, you have to be very careful. If it's a business, different story. If you're going to start doing multi-engine training, that's awesome. Maybe you're going to turn that into a business. But if your goal is to, say, make it to a corporate aviation department, you're going to make it to an airline. Like you say, it's better to have somebody else pay for it. That's the ultimate. I mean, what happens, too, is once you start teaching in all these airplanes, people start asking you, hey, can you teach me in this plane? Oh, you're the only one on the airport that can teach in this twin. Can you come out and help me? And, and I've had that in the past. I, I turn down more instructing jobs than most. That's networking again, though. That's You have the skill. You have the credentials and people know about it you can't just sit in your house hoping for people to find you you have to get out there and let people know what you're doing and what you want to achieve 
because you're right. There's even people who own a Baron. They need to get their their flight review. If you're the guy who can give it, they start coming it to you year after year. They start recommending you. All of a sudden, you're building more multi time without paying for it. And that's what happened to me. I mean, it's a perfect example. Uh, I think it was a Duchess, and there weren't too many people at that airport that had time in the Duchess. I was like, okay, I'll help out. So, so there's a great example. I'm glad you brought that up. So, yes, if you want to buy an airplane, uh, think long and hard about it. The majority of people I talk to that are at the airline, they're having to, to deal with selling it now. And that's something you really don't want to do while you're at work. Maybe you look at a partnership. Who knows? I, I, won't, I won't say don't do it, uh, but you, we really need to look into it. We will have somebody on, though, uh, that that has an opposite opinion. So they'll be on here uh, shortly, actually. We'll be interviewing that person that says, definitely do buy one. But thanks for that, that email. That came from expertaviator.com. Uh, the next one actually comes from the same thing. This is a more technical question uh, from expertaviator.com. And uh, they just want to ask about uh, the, the BFR. It's called a biennial flight review. Now we call it a flight review. We don't call it a BFR because uh, they're getting away from that term. They, they want to just call it a flight review and wants to know if his flight review is still current. Right now is June, okay? We're, we're in, right? Yeah, this is June right now. And, we're, and uh, this person took the CFI checkride and considers that his last flight review. Uh, and that was in May of 2012. And he thinks he needs a flight review uh, on the 31st of May. Well, based on that information alone, he's right, Okay. He needs to have a flight review. Actually, uh, the latest 31st of May, really June 1st, because you can still fly through that May 31st. It's June 1st you turn into a pumpkin. <laughs> but but here's here's the interesting thing. Let's And this is a controversial uh, topic for me, is the one I've, I've gotten the most criticism about, is the article I did on that website about never do a flight review again. And uh, the, the purpose of that was, first of all, it was a statement to get people to look at it, obviously. Uh, but you don't ever have to do a flight re ever, review ever again. I haven't done a flight review in 10 years, and, uh, or more than that, actually. Now, why is that? Because there's so many things that substitute for a flight review. So you need that flight review, okay, a minimum of every 24 calendar months. But you can substitute for a flight review. A substitution can be getting another rating, that type of thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how uh, I think people took that the wrong way, saying, well, you shouldn't do a flight review. That is totally opposite uh, of what I'm thinking. I think you should get involved with the FAA safety program, do the wings. That's every year. You can do that every year, and that counts as a flight review. I personally think you can do a flight review every month if you want. You can review your CFI. You can do so many more things. And, of course, the, the ground school portion is, is only for the ground portion of the flight review. But still, that helps. You know, anything you can do to, to further your training is good, I mean, period. Mm -hmm. No matter who you are, you know, I fly all the time, and I'm still, I'm still learning. I still take courses. Uh, so as far as the, the rating, and, and Jamie can actually speak toward this also, uh, this person wants to know if the IFR rating – uh, also counts as a flight review. And by the way, I'm going to have a link to, to the regulation as far as 6156. And the answer to that is? Yes. If you add a category or class rating, that supersedes the need for a flight review. But to your basic point, the question almost is, it, it concerns me in the sense that people starting to ask, do I need a flight review, meaning in the legal sense. Yeah, that's you do. You know, every 24 months you've got to go through this. But the bigger question is, why are you going through this? And now we said this earlier. You and I fly different types of equipment. If we went flying in that 182 you used to fly, 
there's nothing wrong with me being in the left seat and saying, Carl, let me go do some circuits around the pattern, a couple stalls, steep turns. Tell me how I could improve my flying. And that's all the flight review is. Somebody's sitting there in the other seat saying, hey, okay, that was safe. That was fine. Try this. It may help you a little bit. There's, there's style and there's procedure. Procedure's written down. We're going to do that. Style is different. Sometimes I think people, review, people consider the flight review as a punitive action, that you have to do this or else we're going to suspend your ability to fly, when it's actually an ability to go back to a flight instructor and say, you know what, technology has changed. Oh, there's temporary flight restrictions now. There didn't used to be. Because there's the ground portion as well as the air portion. Maybe I'm flying a different airplane, and I don't care if that's going up from a, a champ to a baron or whether you're going down from a baron to a champ there's a reason to get flight training in that specific machine because it has different characteristics and we've got to keep up on that we're not supermen we're pilots we understand how to operate a machine the flight review is about getting up to speed and being safe being aware of regulatory changes being aware of airspace changes being aware of technological changes i mean didn't used to have gps in the cockpit now it's everywhere and Frankly, working on your own skill levels and being aware, maybe I'm not sharp enough to be flying a Bonanza. Maybe I need more time to be doing that, but maybe I'm okay in a 152. You know, and let's face it, speed requires proficiency. Complexity requires proficiency. And at some point in your career, you may just want to say, you know, that's not what I do anymore. I do this. And a flight review can help you make that decision and stay out of trouble, frankly. <laughs> Hey, you know, that, that brings up another point. And I hope, I hope you, people don't, they did get the wrong impression under that article. You never have to do a flight review because you're going beyond the flight review. We're going beyond what you need for the flight review. I think that's a part of that point you're making there. But, you know, you can make that refresher your flight review. And that, I think that's incredibly important to, to mention that. A flight review, you don't fail a flight review. You always pass the flight review eventually, mm -hmm. you know. So say you haven't flown in 10 years. Well, it might take you 5, 10 hours to pass that flight review. But you, you wait till the end, and then you sign the person off for that flight review. So don't, don't be as nervous about a flight review as a check ride. That's for sure. And the, and the instructor you're working with shouldn't make it like that. Uh, the person – go ahead. Well, and I would say the, the consumer, the, the person getting the flight review, has some power in this where it's perfectly acceptable to go to the instructor and say, look, I haven't flown in five years. I really don't have the confidence to do this. I, need, I know I need a flight review to be legal. But let's make sure I'm proficient and on top of things. There's nothing wrong with that at all because we all have weaknesses. Or go in and saying, you know, I've been flying for 100 years and I'm really good at it, but I've never flown with GPS and I have GPS in this new airplane I have. Can you get me up to speed on that so it's not a distraction, so it's a real tool? That, that's all valid stuff. It's interesting because uh, airline pilots don't do flight reviews and they normally uh, renew their flight instructor certificates without ever instructing and, and that's kind of scary. So along with that flight review, go beyond that. Get some training. You know, when I went back to teaching in single-engine aircraft while I was an airline pilot, one of the things I did is I got with a flight instructor, somebody I trusted, somebody who would sit down with me and not think, oh, you're an airline pilot, you should know this, who, who would start with square run and say, hey, do you remember this? Do you remember that? You know, TCAs. Oh, wait, wait, I'm going back too far. <laughs> you know, class B and C airspace. And, and he sat there and explained this to me. He said, this is what's changed, and this is what you're ne going to need to do. It wasn't many changes, but it was enough. That, and now I'm comfortable now. Now I'm comfortable going back and, and actually flying with those people. Uh, the other point, too, is this person asks about, he got a type rating. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. okay? And the typewriting was not done in this country. Uh, most of the airlines, you know, a lot of times, they, right, especially now because they're hiring so much, they don't have enough in, uh, simulators, mm-hmm. so they're sending them to other places. I did the same thing. I went somewhere else for my training. Uh, the first job I, I uh, received at an airline, we went to Toulouse in France to do our type ratings. And that type rating, as long as it's on your, your U.S. certificate, that counts as a flight review, even though it was done overseas. So remember, that, that can happen. You can get your type certificate, and that can count towards your flight review, no matter where that's done. So, so just keep that in mind. So that was a very technical uh, question, and I'm glad somebody asked that. Uh, again, most of the audience here is, is pilots we talk to, but, but thank God it's growing. Uh, you know, we have a lot of other folks out there that, that are listening. So if, you, if you're listening now and you're not a pilot, remember those people up front that are flying you. They have to go through recurrent training, and that's what the flight review is. And especially airline pilots, they go through training sometimes every six months, at least once a year. And sometimes that once-a-year training can be over many days. Uh, and that's a good thing. And the, the airlines are so safe because of that, because they go through that training once every six months to a year. So why don't you do the same? You know, if you want to be safe, why don't, why don't you try to do that? And, you know, the FAA safety program is a great example. They try to mimic that training, you know, that type of, of recurrent training. I think one of the things people maybe who aren't involved in aviation on a day-to-day basis misses much of that recurrent training and much of the flight review you're going to do. It's preparing for the unexpected. Flight training is very often, I mean, actually learning to fly is not that difficult, but dealing with problems and maintaining a level of safety is a whole different thing. That's why you'll, in multi-engine, you're going to have an engine out and that sort of thing. It's it's not that you expect these things to happen, but you need to refresh your memory and verify, I know how to follow the steps. I know which page in the book to go to. Because it's all, ultimately, it's all about safety. It's not about being the coolest guy around. It's about being able to stay safe under any circumstance. That's true with every type of flying, no matter what you do in life. Well, thanks for that question, Alex. And we will have links to the uh, FAR 6156 that talks about the flight review. Well, moving on to our next question, it's, uh, well, it's actually more of a comment. Uh, It says, hi, Carl. Hope you're well. I'm writing to first say that I really enjoyed your recent discussion with Carlene. Carlene Pettit uh, was on the show. She said, great stuff. And between you, Eric, and Carlene, we've enjoyed some interesting insights into the work-life family considerations pertaining to the aviation career. And that's important to, to think about that. I'm also writing to request a little shout-out to my friend Shane. for he, He's in the same career transition period as I am. Uh, he says he used to work together and is moving towards his dream as a commercial jet pilot. Well, today he joined the ranks of pilot in command and flew a Cessna 152 solo uh, around the circuit. And I'm, I'm going to mess up this name in Moravian Airport in Melbourne, Australia. He's been my co-pilot on many of my recreational flying adventures. So I'm very happy that he's reached this important milestone in his own journey. Thanks again, Carl, for all your work, wonderful work. Keep the great t- content coming. Hopefully I'll have some of my own aviation career news in the coming weeks. Fingers crossed. Uh, and, you know, thanks so much for that email. I love to hear those stories. And it really it, 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 it lightens my heart when I hear people that are moving forward in their career. And, you know, I think you will. You know, keep, keep working towards that goal. And, and you're going to do the same thing. You're going to make, make it towards those milestones. By the way, 
Melbourne, Australia. There's just a, a quick aside. Uh, I put on my Facebook page that I, I am not moving to Melbourne, Australia, and, and I and I won't be playing as a midfielder. They, what's happened recently, wh- wh- while we're recording this, right, you have the World Cup that's happening. And, of course, there's somebody who's a distant relative. His name is Carl Valeri, the same name, who's a midfielder, an Italian, and he just announced he's moving to Melbourne, Australia, to, to fly for the Melbourne victory. Now, if you've ever seen a picture of me, you really couldn't confuse the two. You know, cause you, you, if, I'm more I, of a defenseman. I'm more of a defenseman. <laughs> I, I, you wouldn't want to see me as a mil- midfielder running down the field. Although, you know, I used to be in sports. Currently, I'm not in the shape that I used to be. Let's let's put it, uh, you know, around is a shape, but, and and that's what I I've strived to become. But you know, it's funny after watching that, and I'm getting emails from people from all over the world, and, and you know, saying congratulations, etc. Uh, you know, gosh, soccer is good. You know, I think I think I want to get into soccer, but but no, I'm not that Carl Valeri and. And congratulations to to the Carl Valeri who did that. And you know, there's <laughs> it's interesting that the the flight over to that to Australia from Italy was was quite long. And we talked a little bit about aviation. For big shout out to the folks at, at Plane Crazy Down Under. Uh, so no, I'm not moving to Melbourne, Australia. I don't play soccer. Wish I could. Uh, I've run a, a lot when I was younger, and I, maybe I'll get back in shape again. That's another thing too, by the way. To keep your medical, you really need to to keep in shape. And that's some, another reason. You never know. I might start playing. I may get just as good as. He, he is. I very much doubt that. But again, great shout out. Appreciate it. Uh, going on to the next uh, topic here, our next question comes in and it talks about the pilot shortage. Uh, it says, Carl, I also I so agree with your podcast on the pilot shortage. Uh, if you, you get on to uh, findapilot.com, jsfirm.com, or hiring.com, you'll see so many job posting. Most do not require a four-year degree, but will help if you're competing against someone who holds a four-year degree. That's very true. Point is, you should have that four-year degree. Uh, he flies a UH-60 uh, for the Army National Guard and holds a fixed-wing uh, instant commercial multi-CFI-II helicopter instrument and commercial. That's a lot. Uh, I watch the pilot job market very closely and would like to help in any way. Could you please urge listeners, and this is important, we've mentioned this before and we'll mention it again, uh, please urge listeners, if you're a pilot, to get your ATB written before August 1st 3014. Even if you don't, uh, what did I say? What did I say? Oh, it worked. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm really ahead of myself. 2000. Thanks. Thanks for that. And it's funny because he wrote that and I read it and it didn't even register. But yes, 2014. You don't have a thousand years. You just have a few months. Even if you don't meet the requirements for getting the ATP right now. As you know, the written is good for two years. In that time frame, they can work on meeting the other requirements to take the practical test. Thank you for taking interest in aviation careers after you are sitting more comfortable than those still looking on. I'm sitting more comfortable. Gosh, it's true. I do sit in a very comfortable seat in the Airbus, but uh, but I, I tell you, it's it's you should never just sit comfortably in any career. You, you have to always keep moving forward. Uh, so so even though I'm sitting comfortable I, and I enjoy it and, and the pay is really nice, I, uh, I still am looking at the next step. Always looking at the next step. Uh, and what that might be, who knows? Who knows what that'll be? I still st- keep my job, but this is part of it. You know, it's the Aviation Careers Podcast. Uh, one of the reasons he mentions, by the way, getting the ATP written, I don't know if you can speak towards this, uh, because of the new. there's a, some new flight training that has to go on. Actually, simulator training that will have to happen uh, after August uh, to, to get your ATP, to just sit for the ATP written. To actually take the exam, you have to have the simulator training. And in my opinion, I... I don't think this was really well thought out. Uh, it's part of what our, our 
our bureaucrats have decided is is what we need for the ATP. It's you're going to get that training anyway when you go to the airlines. Uh, so is it going to help you much? Uh, yeah, any training will help you. It's gonna it's gonna be a little bit tougher because think about the cost that's going to be incurred. Uh, you're not talking about renting a 172. You're talking about a simulator. Some renting with an instructor for thousands of dollars per hour, and you could spend ten, fifteen thousand dollars for the requirement for the actual simulator training, and you're going to get the same training at the airline. So great point. Get that written done as fast as you can. Um, moving on to our next question, and it's. Uh, Talks about a checkered background and flying. Now, this is a really, really important topic. Uh, of course, oh, by the way, if you write in, we're, we won't use your name in, uh, in this unless you want us to. Uh, but he says, he's, uh, he says, hi, Carl. I've been a fan of your podcast for a while now. Your passion for aviation is very inspiring, and I really appreciate everything you, do, you are doing for aspiring pilots like myself. You've answered a question for me before, and I hope that maybe you can help me again. My past haunts me. I was a person who... who uh, partied hard and held no responsibility for anything, got into trouble with the law, nothing more than a minor misdemeanor, and destroyed my credit. Two and a half years ago, I took a good look in the mirror, and I was disappointed with myself. I had amounted to nothing. That was a big wake-up call. I realized I needed to change. I decided to pursue a new career, a new life. I cleaned up. I've been drug-free for two years now, and I'm uh, in the process of restoring my credit. I'm currently a student pilot working on my private license. I want to work in the corporate world and eventually move up to the majors at some point. Here's my concern. Will my past prohibit me from obtaining these goals? Will I be able to fly internationally? What kind of limits will I face? Uh, I'm in my 30s and not getting any younger. I want to do things right so I can do what I love, flying airplanes. I appreciate any feedback you or anyone else can give me on this matter. Keep up the good work. I look forward to the next episode. Thanks, and, and thanks for being so transparent in that email. Uh, I have people that I've worked with uh, that have the same issue, where they have something in their past. It depends on how recent it is in your past. It won't stop you from all your aviation flying, but you sound like you want to go to the airlines and you want to fly corporate. I will say that there are countries, and we're, you're in the U.S., countries that border the U.S. that are very strict. Not so much Mexico, but Canada. I've been through this a million times where we cross the border into Mexico and we can't get back out because somebody in the flight crew has something in their background. Canada is very strict on immigration, uh, for, especially for flight crews. So if you have anything like a drunk driving, uh, any misdemeanors, uh, it may be an issue because you're a commercial pilot. Even say, here's an interesting one, you were a commercial limo driver in the United States and got a speeding ticket, that could prevent you from going into Canada. I've run into these problems. I've spent many hours and sleepless nights and, and getting people out of detention or a prison cell, either at the airport or in the downtown area in, in Canada. Normally what happens to get around that, because it sounds like you'll probably stay in this area, is to go and, and get your residency in Canada, to get your temporary residency, and that will allow you to pass uh, between the borders. Uh, they say that that doesn't always work, but it does, I mean, it's, it's unless they change that. Uh, also, there's other countries I know, like China, Russia, uh, maybe some others that I don't know of. That's really important. But I, I'm glad you're moving forward. The biggest thing is you're moving forward. And and you've been through this tough time. And, you know, don't discount other careers too, by the way. I mean, there, there's other flying careers out there, especially within the U.S. Uh, but but go and ask 
the folks in Canada, go ask the airline that you're applying to or the corporate uh, department, but be upfront with that. I will say uh, I've had one person that came to me and said, listen, I had this happen six weeks ago, and I don't think it'll be a problem. I was arrested for uh, you know, carrying a substance, and um, he, uh, I said, man, you should really have told them about it. Sure enough, three days later, he was fired. And the real reason is because he didn't disclose that. They said we probably could have worked with him, but he, he lied to us. So don't lie about that on, on your resume. You know, the advice is good, Carl. And I think I would give this advice regardless of a, this situation or anything else, but it's especially true in this one. Find a mentor. Find somebody who does what you want to do for a living, who has an awareness and connections, and somebody you trust. And it may take you time to find that person, but don't let this problem dissuade you from pursuing a career that's your dream. You may have to modify it slightly, and as Carl suggested, you, you may end up flying corporate or for an airline that stays domestic, stays within the contiguous 48, and, and that may be fine. Uh, but get a mentor, somebody you can talk to in the future, because this isn't going to be a one-time question. This is, If it's recorded in your past, this is going to come up again. And you're absolutely right. Being forthright with a potential employer is critical. Not, not disclosing something is, in many cases, worse than having the offense in your background in the first place. And, and certainly within the FAA, falsifying documentation is the worst thing you can do. And to some people, omission is the same as falsification. So find a mentor, find somebody who can start to provide you advice and you can build a relationship with rather than just an email response, helpful as this may be. <laughs> no, and I very much agree with that. As a matter of fact, what I'll do is I'll, I'll uh, seek out one of the people that I helped with this and see if the, they'd be willing to tell their story. Uh, had a drunk driving, went into Canada, and it was a person I spent a lot of time with uh, trying to, to get them out of, out, of the, uh, out of the detention center there. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting. You know, I, he'll probably talk about it, maybe not in person and maybe anonymously, but uh, what are the challenges there? You know, like you said, get a mentor, get somebody. And, and specifically, it's hard to find people that really talk about it. Uh, people are, are somewhat ashamed of it. Uh, but don't be. I mean, we all we all have issues, you know, and, and we're able to overcome those. So there, there's many, many people out there uh, that have been through the same thing and are moving forward. So I, I know you can do it. Uh, so a, a great advice. Thanks for that advice. I think we should uh, definitely find a mentor for you. Next email comes from uh, somebody who is uh, flying in Papua New Guinea. And uh, he actually, uh, we talked about, uh, and we'll probably have him on the show, I think in August or September, uh, this person's coming to Lakeland, Florida, and uh, actually is uh, doing some work with some of the flight schools, helping people get trained to fly down in Papua New Guinea and, uh, or in Indonesia. And uh, he, he does say one thing, uh, and he, it's a bit of a follow-up here uh, concerning flying there. He says that flying in Papua is definitely not for everyone. Uh, there are sacrifices that you have to make, like being really far away from family and friends, and also working cross-culturally, which can be challenging. But the flying is amazing, and the job satisfaction is off the charts, and that's his opinion. I agree. <laughs> Every day you know that you made a huge difference in someone's life, either through a medevac flight or by bringing relief supplies and food to a village that is suffering or bringing medicines and doctors and nurses in to help with health care. Every day is different and totally rewarding. Just the other day, I was bringing a pregnant lady to a hospital. She's been in labor for three days and no progress. 
That was until she delivered in the plane at 10,000 feet, about 70 nautical miles from the main airport. Maybe it was a change in air pressure. I don't know, but it was totally cool. Thanks. That was awesome. What an incredible story. And, you know, there's, there's, no, you know, there's no greater satisfaction than helping people and helping people that, that possibly can't help themselves and, and seeing someone delivered on, on your own airplane. That, that's something you'll, you'll never forget for the rest of your life. Doing that type of flying that, that he's doing down there is, uh, you know, I commend him for it. I think that's a, a wonderful thing. It's not for everybody. It's incredibly challenging. And he, you know, I've spoken with him in the past. It's dangerous. You know, there's nothing, you know, let's not, you know, try to sugarcoat it. You know, he's, because he, we've been talking about it and, and trying to suggest it to people. First of all, you got to realize you're not flying in the friendliest territory. Uh, it's not, you know, the mountains, the type of airports, landing on roads, uh, people get themselves hurt, so you have to be. You have to know your limitations. That's for for sure. Um, but anyway, appreciate that little that little talk about that. We are going to have him on in a future episode. I can't wait to hear more about flying down in Papua New Guinea. You know, I love that because it really does speak to the diversity of flying for a living. And there's such a broad spectrum of what you could be doing. I have friends from flight school who fly in Indonesia, some fly freight out of Alaska. I mean, there's just all kinds of jobs. It's not your normal nine to five. But if you find something you like, you're absolutely right, Carl, nothing replaces it. And the the fact that aviation has literally changed the world, whether it was the Berlin airlift in the 40s or whether it was Haitian relief after the earthquake down there, aviation provides the opportunity to literally save people's lives because any other method of transportation is too slow. If you're cut out for that work, go for it. But it does require a high level of proficiency and skill. These are good pilots. Yeah, and, you know, with that, uh, if you think you're not going to be able to make a difference, say, as an airline pilot, I spoke to a manager with Japan Airlines, a U.S. manager, and you can make a difference as an airline pilot because they ask people to do relief flights. I tell you what, that is the coolest thing to do. I was able to, for me personally, I did what's called an honor flight. I don't know if you've heard of that, but that's where uh, we take our veterans to see the monuments in Washington, D.C. That was amazing. To I just happened to show up and say, hey, listen, you're flying this flight. Wow, that was the neatest. One, it's memorable. I'm doing something. I'm helping people in some way. I'm being paid to do it, of course. But for instance, in, in the airlines, they have like Japan Airlines during Haiti. They went down and brought in all sorts of things, all sorts of troops, cargo, uh, mobile units so that people could live in them, mobile hospitalization. They built some hotels. It's it's incredible what you can get involved with as a pilot for for an airline. Look at look at orbits. Look at all these different airlines that actually fly the world to help people that have eye problems and 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 actually teeth everything. And there there's there's so much out there. So I think that's that's uh, an amazing thing to do. You can make a difference as a pilot. That's for sure. Uh, here, uh, next question. Actually, it's a story. It comes in from a listener who corresponded in the past with us. He says, hi, Carl. Yes, I've chosen the school where I do my flight instructor rating. And he was looking for a uh, flight instructor's rating. Of course, we're not going to mention the school. But he uh, says, a chief instructor at the school where I did my commercial pilot license and MEI, commercial instrument rating, recommended them highly. As the lady that runs the course has been turning out quality flight instructors for many years, also, it's starting to look like I will be the only person on the course starting in July, so I should get plenty of attention during the training. Honestly, I cannot wait, getting really excited. I finally resigned from my corporate job, finishing up at the end of June. 
which is a little nerve-wracking to say the least. However, my wife and family are supportive and management has said that the door is always open for someone like me. So instead of being fearful, I'm really excited. So gosh, this is a terrific story. If you're thinking about moving on and leaving your job, first of all, that paragraph right there, don't, don't ever burn your bridges. Make sure that door is still open. And it's wonderful to have the support of your family whenever you're doing this. So include your family in any of these great decisions that you're going to make. I passed my annual instrument rating renewal flight test last week. It was really great to get back into the seat again. And in Australia, we need to do both keeping IFR current similar, current, excuse me, similar to the USA and also fly the annual renewal. Listening to the last episode, I heard there were a few out there like me wondering how to go about switching careers. Main issue being getting training done while still being a supportive member of the family. What worked really well for me was I approached the management with my company and explained what I wanted to do, i.e. change careers. I explained that I wanted to take a few six to ten week periods of leave without pay each year to complete the parts of my training. It worked well because firstly I could rest assured that I had a job to go back to straight away. I also felt I was making good progress towards my career goals, and I also could dedicate myself to full-time to training, making the learning process easier. As I progressed to the point I am now, it came as no surprise to management when I finally dropped my resignation in. They were actually excited for me. Thanks for everything, and I'll keep you updated. Well, terrific. Thanks for that story. It's a wonderful story. Uh, You know, it's amazing what you can do if you just keep people in the loop. Uh, you know, I, I had a similar story where I worked with a company and I said, listen, I want to change careers. Can I just work three days a week? I'll put in 12 hours a day. And they said, sure. So at the same time, I was doing my flight training. So I did three days working in that career, five days flying. And then at some point they said, listen, we're done with the project you were working on. This might be a good time for you to move on. And they said, but, you know, if you ever want to come back, you can come back. So if his story, my story and I'm sure many other people out there have stories where they've left a job but have been asked to come back to that if they want the job back. So don't be afraid. I actually had a very similar experience. I was working with a company and wanted to go do full-time flight training out of state. I let them know, and we arranged everything, and I went off and did it, but I stayed in touch with them. And the problem everybody at flight school has is they come up on the end is, oh, I need a job now. They asked me to come back for three months, which was great because it gave me, I had employment the week after finishing flight school, and it gave me the time to go out and get resumes out and get my first flight instruction job. It, it was great, and you're absolutely right. Just keep people in the loop. Be honest and tell them what you're trying to do. People want to help somebody succeed. They like that. <laughs> That's very true. As a matter of fact, the people that I've worked with in the past – it's really interesting that they said, you know, we, we looked at your story and it was so inspirational. I changed careers late in life. Uh, I was in my 30s and I, I got into the aviation career full time. They said that that was so inspiring for them to see someone move forward in something they love to do, knowing that it wouldn't make anywhere near the money that I was making with my other job. And it inspired people to do things that they normally wouldn't have done in the past. Uh, so, so you have to be responsible, of course. You know, I have a friend that, you know, as people know, I, I lived full-time in a motorhome for a while and did 18 months traveling in that. I inspired somebody to actually do that and take off. Uh, look at Len Costa, who was the host of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Uh, he actually is now traveling the world uh, for four years. And he, he may not even come back. He's pretty much said he's, he's retired. So, you know, you can do things. 
but he kept his family in the loop. He kept me in the loop. He kept everybody else in the loop, and that's really important. Share your dreams. Be careful who you share your dreams with, though. That's one thing I learned. Share it with people that are going to help support you in your dreams. When you get some pushback, it, it might be a good idea to move on to somebody else. Sometimes those are family members. That's tough to do. could be your parents. A lot of times it is your parents because your parents are going to tell you, oh, you don't want to do that. The most important thing is to, if you're a parent listening to somebody who's saying, you know, I want to be an airline pilot and, and you're listening to this podcast right now, uh, support that. Say, okay, now what we need to do is leave those dreams in the, in the clouds. Let's build a foundation up to it, you know, and, and we'll build this building above it. We'll get you to that point, but, but go in there with eyes wide open, you know, understand what the challenges will be. And, uh, you know, we all hear about the money we can make and et cetera, but there's also the other side. There's the downside. There's years of not making any money. So, so look at everything when you're, when you're changing careers. That's a great story, and, and I encourage you to keep moving forward. You're going to have challenges again. I know it. Where all of a sudden you're not going to be making hardly any money, and you, you're going to try to move forward, and, and you're going to be like, ah, maybe this isn't worth it. Thanks for that question or the comment. The next question comes in. He gives me a whole lot of background. We won't talk about that, but uh, the next question is about uh, getting himself hired at an aviation business. Uh, wants to know how to do that. Uh, if I'm going to make a change, I'm going back to airplanes, this person says. He was in another career. Uh, there's some good size uh, FBOs where they are, and uh, there's some airlines in the area. So he doesn't have a degree, uh, but is looking towards moving towards a degree. So, uh, you know, how do, how do I move forward into getting hired with an aviation business? I think uh, you talked a little bit about networking and, and being at an airport, Jamie, and I think that is important. If you want to get hired, go where the pilots are, go where the people are. Uh, you know, I always, a lot of the flight instructors ask me, how, do I, how did I make so much money flight instructing? I said, because I was where the people wanted to learn how to fly. I was at the airport. Yeah. You know, because that's where they want to learn how to fly. And I wore T-shirts all day long. I got one on now that talks about flying. I do it all the time. Someone comes up to me and says, hey, you know, I want to learn to fly. Here's my card. I'll help you out. That type of thing. So, so yeah, that's how you do it. You network, network, network. I'm going to – and, Jamie, you want to also make a comment on network. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, when I got my first flying job, I printed out resumes and letters of introduction, you know, cover letters – but I hand-delivered them to every flight school in a three-state area. And, and I did that specifically because I could have mailed it. It would have been cheaper and easier. But if I walk in the door and hand-deliver it, I may get in a conversation with somebody that leads someplace. And that's exactly what happened. And I ended up with a job. Physically being there makes all the difference in the world. And having the right attitude. The I want to be here. I want to put myself into this and excel. It, it's everything. It's interesting you said that because now we're all online with these applications. And this is a common theme, by the way. I hope you've been listening to the past few episodes about getting federal jobs, et cetera. It, it's important. People are people, and they hire people. There, you still have a relationship with people. We can't get away from that. You know, we have the, the iPads, and we have avatars nowadays, but there's still people that you, you buy from people, you sell to people. Uh, you know, th this this is one thing that I think we've had happen is that we've stepped away from our personality somewhat with this, this all these new computers. Now we're realizing we need to step back into our personalities and be the person that we should be. You know, we aren't that avatar. We are a person. You know, who's your avatar? It's you. I have a good friend from flight school who dreamed of flying corporate. He didn't want to go to the airlines. He wanted to be a corporate guy. And he, like a lot of us, he went and worked as a flight instructor, and he was there for a few years, and he was successful at it, and he built up his time. He got multi-time. 
and the company he wanted to fly for had a base at his airport. And one day, just one of the captains happened to be walking by, and he says, hey, how, how do you get hired to work there? And the guy said, bring me a resume tomorrow. And he got hired. <laughs> That's the process. So, I mean, it really is. And it was a case of he had, the, the captain had seen this guy around. He knew what he was doing, and, and he was willing to, you know, walk the, the resume in. But, you know, in a corporate environment especially, that may be a relatively small flight department where that guy who you just saw on the ramp, he may be part of the decision-making process. Physically being there, Trump's email and social media and everything else, be there. Physically shake their hand, look them in the eye, and smile. You know, I, I uh, years ago grew a business, and uh, the business grew rapidly, and it got to the point where my competitors were trying to buy me out. And they said to me this, they said, you have been everywhere that we want to be, and you've been in that store, and that's important. You can't just make a phone call, walk in the store, walk up to the person that's in that FBO, walk up to that airplane and say, hi, I'm Carl, I'd like to fly airplanes, can you tell me something about it? And they will love to tell you their story usually, unless they're in a hurry, of course, but, but normally they, they love to share that story. So yes, do those things. And, and don't be afraid. You can actually move forward with that, and, and you'll get hired too. So that's really important. The last, we have one more question, and then we're going to have to close up here. Uh, I know we're at the hour mark too. So uh, this comes in and says, uh, hey, Carl, hope is all well with you. Had a quick question. Have you heard of people creating their own online job resume via a .com site? I was thinking about creating something like uh, myname.com, something that I could include in a paper resume that would direct an employer to the site if they wished, which would take them to a brief profile of me and also downloadable PDF versions of my resume. Didn't know if you have seen this tactic work in the job industry. Uh, actually, yes. Uh, we have a product online. It's called thepilotjobsbook.com, and that's maybe what you've heard of. Uh, it was it was actually created by Tom Wachowski. He's also a, a co-host of the show. And what that does is it walks you through how to make a website. As a matter of fact, we have a free website uh, video or a free video on the website that teaches you how to make your own website. It's actually howtomakeyourownwebsite.com. All you have to do is register on our website, aviationcareerspodcast.com. You get that video for free. If you're looking towards possibly purchasing that video, that's also included in annual membership at aviationcareerspodcast.com. You can actually purchase that video yourself. It's like $30. Uh, annual membership's 50 So if you're thinking of using anything else on the website, I'd, I, I'd push you towards actually possibility of the annual membership. If you don't want to do that, by the way, we have an ease of entry. It's only $5 for a monthly membership. You get the first video in that series for free and talks about putting your resume together. The Pilot Jobs book is actually a booklet that has your resume and has all this other information in there that you present to somebody. Uh, it's really impressive when you do that, but also teaches you how to make your own website. And yes, it's important to do that. You're, uh, a lot of people say, well, I'll just point them towards my Facebook page. Eh, they're going to investigate your Facebook page, by the way, when, when they lo do look in your background. So be very careful of what you put out there. Uh, but having your own website that tells, you, tells people who you are, what you do, and what you want to do is incredibly important because so many people have computers these days. Have you ever seen anybody use that tactic before? Actually, I've seen that tactic, and I've seen embedding a video there. The video is great because your personality carries through on it, and you can go ahead and show them you flying, you with your kids, you with whatever. It, it can make a difference. This is an experimental age in this. It's, there's really no 
yeah, that absolutely works. But it's an option. It's something that gets your name out there. And, and certainly in a case where you can't physically be at that flight department because of distance, you can use the web and video to let them know you are interested and you are a responsible person. You know, it's interesting because this is uh, an avenue that many of the airlines are going. One airline in particular, uh, maybe we'll have somebody from that airline on and explain to that process, but you actually have to do a video uh, and and send that video in, and, uh, and kind of like an online interview. So you have to be able to work with that social media, quote-unquote, and that online presence. I think it is important these days to have a website. People are doing it with everything else. Uh, just be careful how you put it together. Also, furthermore, like I just said, be careful with your social media, what you do, because some of the things you say may be misinterpreted. Uh, you know, I love to go out. I'll give you a good example. I like to, to sample all sorts of different types of beer. It uh, doesn't mean I don't drink responsibly. You know, I'm a drunk or anything, but it, it could, when you see all these pictures of beer on my web, on say my Facebook page, you think, oh gosh, is this guy an alcoholic? Well, of course I'm not, but, but the perception can be that. So you have to be careful how much of that you're doing and, uh, and is it appropriate or not. So you, you need to really look at what you're doing, not just on your website, but everywhere else. We're going to have Tom Wachowski on, by the way, on the next episode to talk about getting hired in private aviation, in corporate aviation, because that's what he does with his uh, private jet podcast. Uh, that's for people that own aircraft and use private jets, and he has a lot of advice as to what to do. And plus we have that course there for you. Jamie, I really appreciate it. It's always fun talking to Jamie. Uh, he's a blast. He's always got something new. Uh, I'm glad you wrote that article. Uh, I, I don't know if he wrote the article because we were getting together today. I know you didn't. But uh, that was very apropos and, and, and perfect timing. We'll have a link out to that article. It's at General Aviation News. Uh, and if you have questions for Jamie, of course, just go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash contact. Write me an email. I'll forward it to Jamie. Is there anywhere else that, Jamie, we can point them towards where they can find you or any of your information? They can always go to jamiebeckett.com. It's J-A-M-I-E-B-E-C-K-E-T-T.com. It's got everything you need and an email link and the whole deal. Great. See, Jamie has a website himself, too. So if you, if you want to find out information about Jamie, go to the website. We'll, I'll actually have a link to that website and make it easier for folks. Go to aviationcursepodcast.com slash 62. Have a link to, to Jamie's website there. Jamie, appreciate it. Any, any last-minute advice for people that I know you talked about writing and, uh, or anything in aviation careers? Any last-minute advice for folks that are, that are thinking about getting into this career, not just from a pilot's perspective, but from a, a general perspective? You know, Where do I start? You know, if, if it's your passion, pursue it, but find out what information you can. I thought the most shocking thing that happened to me in my career when I went to full-time flight school, there were people who showed up who had never flown in any capacity and really didn't understand what the job was they're going for. And, and I do know a few people who fly for airlines now who kind of regret getting into it because they didn't realize there was so much time away from their family. You know, the plane lands on the other end and you kind of have to stay there for a while. Mm -hmm. So it would be worth understanding the career because aviation is not just the airlines. There's a lot of diversity. If you want to fly for a living, you can. Or if you want to wrench for a living or engineer or whatever aspect you want to be in. But find out what that job is really like. And that's why I recommended a mentor before. This, this industry is not what people think it is. It is something unto itself, and it's great if you like it, and it's just horrible if you, that's not what you were expecting. So find out what you want to get into and then pursue that with all your heart and soul. 
Well, hopefully listening to this helps you because we try to relate some yes. realities about the industry. But the mentor thing is really important. Uh, you know, we try to help mentor people, but we also point you towards, say, an instructor or somebody in your area. We are trying to put together a directory. It's a little more of a challenge than, than we had thought. So if you, you're in an area, you can email us and we'll, we'll try to point you in the right direction. I'm not saying we'll find somebody, but there's some other organizations that actually can find you a mentor. Actually, AOPA Flight Training has some, some good people out there. There's also a National Association of Flight Instructors that's out there and, uh, and uh, SAFE, the Society of Aviation Flight Educators. They have ways to point you towards people who have been in this career. I'm glad you said that about the airline thing because, you know, just a quick update on my career. Uh, as you know, I started doing a lot of international flying. Uh, went for the training, etc. And my issue right now is I'm away from home so much. To do the international flying, I'm now kind of junior. And so what happens when you're junior? You don't get the holidays and you don't get the weekends off. So my uh, wife has has very much been supportive of my decision to uh, to change that and to move to a, to doing more of a domestic type of flying and uh, to get the weekends off and to change bases, that type of thing. So, yeah, it's neat to go to these places. I love going to South America, and I love going to the Caribbean, but uh, sometimes it's easier just to go do a transcon and come home the next day, you know, just stay one night and come back. Uh, you know, when I come home from, especially a lot of these red eyes, that's another portion you have to look at. I get home from red eye, I'm done. I'm toast. At, eight, at 6 o'clock in the morning, I, I have to go to bed. I just did... Uh, I think it was nine or ten red-eye flights this past month. Uh, yes, the pay is a lot better for flying at night. It's a lot better flying in internationally, but but I tell you what, I'd rather pick up a turn to, say, uh, New York City or that type of thing or a turn to Florida that, uh, instead of doing that just to help me out with my personal life and also my sleep uh, schedule. So, yeah, the international thing is kind of neat. Listen to Carlene Pettit, what, what she said. You know, we're tired all the time uh, just because of the type of flying we do. Not everybody's like that. If you're senior enough, you can do turns. I mean, it's not may not be as glamorous. By a turn, meaning you go somewhere and you come back the same day. It's not as glamorous, but it, it pays well. And uh, if that's what you want to do, if you want to do an overnight, go ahead and do it. I talk to a lot of airline pilots that do that. They're home every single night. You need a little seniority for that. Or you may not move into the captaincy. You may stay as a senior first officer. But that's what they want to do, and their lifestyle is wonderful. So remember that when you're choosing a career. Well, folks, I appreciate you listening to this podcast. I, with Jamie, it's always fun. We always learn something new. It's a wonderful new perspective. We'll definitely have Jamie on again if he'll come back. And uh, he says yes, thumbs up. Uh, the, the thing that, that I want you to do, of course, like I always say, try to do something, one thing that will move you forward in your career, something small. So it's listening to this podcast or somebody else's podcast about aviation. Uh, it could be reading a book. And also, if you uh, want to help support the podcast, I want you to consider possibly an annual membership or uh, go out to our sponsors at our aviationcareerspodcast.com and, and click on them, go visit them, because they are the people that help pay for this podcast and keep bringing it to you. Once again, safe flying. I appreciate your listening, and I know you can do it. I know whatever it is that you want to do, you can do that. If you have any questions, send us an email. And also, if you have any stories, send those in too. We'll talk to you next episode. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler, all rights reserved.